Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Matt Kane, Editor-in-Chief of Attitude. And welcome to an extra special New Year's episode of Attitude Heroes. Today, it's your chance to hear some of the very best bits from all 13 of the fantastic guests we spoke with throughout 2017, and to hear some of your thoughts about what this series has meant to you. As ever, there's quite a bit of strong language for me and the guests, but I'm sure you're used to that by now. Attitude Heroes is sponsored by the Great Britain Campaign, which welcomes the world to visit, do business, invest and study in the UK. You can check out their website at great.gov.uk. And our co-sponsors are Jaguar. If you'd like more information on their products, then you can visit the website jaguar.co.uk or look out for them in the latest issue of Attitude magazine. When we launched Attitude Heroes this time last year, our aim was simple to mark the 50th anniversary of the partial decriminalisation of homosexuality in England and Wales. We wanted to see how far we'd come as a community, to celebrate the progress we've made and to acknowledge the journey that still lies ahead. Our first guest was a member of film and theatre royalty. Sir Ian McKellen was almost 30 when the law changed, but he didn't officially come out until 1988. His move was prompted by a piece of legislation called Section 28, and Ian explained what it was about that bill that caused him to go public. If one day uh, the government says that in future it will be illegal to speak positively about homosexuality in the school, and that government is headed by Mrs Thatcher, who I didn't like, her malign influence is still very strong in this country, when she adopted this private member's bill and, and, and pushed it through Parliament, I took that very personally, and so did other people, and effortlessly uh, joined the fight against it without, without thinking. I, I'd come back from America very aware of, of, of AIDS, and, of course, AIDS is the, the reason why all the churches oh, happened. Because absolutely. It had to be discussed. It it is incredible that the Thatcher government distributed to every household in this country uh, advice on uh, safe sex. Yeah. Even at the time that they were saying you couldn't talk positively about homosexuality in schools, they were educating the entire country. And God, there must have been some shocked faces when people saw... There weren't any diagrams, I don't think, but... God! they, They were admitting that gay people had sex because they wanted to protect them from unsafe sex. So, from the best of reasons, that this was now in the public domain. Everybody talked about yeah. it. Now, once you talk about homosexuality, you can't help but uh, notice that there's a discrepancy in the way gay people are treated by the law uh, and by society. And from that, I was part of that uh, 
upsurgence. And I'd been well prepared because I knew a lot of gay people. I'd been living very openly with a, a, a gay man. I wasn't in, I didn't feel I was in a closet. The only people in my life who I didn't talk to about it were my stepmother and my sister and, and a blood family. Everybody, everyone who'd ever employed me knew I was gay. Everybody I'd employed knew I was gay. Uh, the, all the press knew I was gay, uh, and but they didn't mention it. Uh, they didn't mention it, and and it was very very easy to avoid their questions, which were not probing. So the press were pathetic on this, absolutely <laughs> pathetic. Yeah, no, absolutely. But you know what? So when you made this public announcement, then mm. not only could the press brush it under the carpet and you avoid questions and interviews, but your stepmom and your sister would have to, did there, was there any discussion with you? I, I mean, I'd love to know what people's reactions were. You know, publicly... Well, they're, 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 family... they're, all my family said, well, we've always known you were gay, and uh, thank you at last for allowing us to talk about it. They, they thought it was a private matter. But I'd been with my boyfriend for Christmas, to we just didn't... We shared a bedroom, but... No. So it was just, <laughs> it was just accepted, it wasn't you. talked about. Yeah. So you just uh, which is not, not a healthy situation. And, and my relationships with my family have been immediately, uh, instantly improved. In February, Paul O'Grady made me laugh and even blush a little with his tales of having sex with sailors in Liverpool docks. This episode was hilarious and one of our most popular but listener Neil Castley from London said the bit that made the most impression on him was when Paul spoke about visiting patients suffering from AIDS in hospital wards during the 1980s. Neil says, Well done on such a brilliant series. I learned something new and was touched by pretty much every episode. So, Neil, this clip is for you. I mean, I used to do shows on the wards with the driller. Frequently, we did that. We used to, I used to, you know those bottles you pay in? Yeah. I, well, I used to swill them out and I put red wine in one and white in the other. <laughs> I plonk them, on the, plonk them on a trolley and be full drag as a nurse and go down the wards, you know, and say, what do you want, red and white? You know, at Christmas and all this, and we'd always do shows to St Mary's. I remember the first person I visited was a young lad who I was pally with in the Vauxhall. He was a design student and he was very young and it was all the yellow tape. And they said, you have to put a gown on and a mask. And I said, no, bugger off. And I went in and his mum was there. Oh, God, it was dreadful. I'll never forget it because his mother couldn't understand. He was like 19, this kid. Oh. And he said to me, I've only been with one fella, Lil. And I just thought, it's so fucking unfair. And they weren't actually showing them a lot of sympathy on the boards then. You know, it was sort of... Because they didn't know what it was. They were highly suspicious. They didn't know whether it was contagious. Yeah, frightened for themselves yeah. as well. so everything you were meant to... And I remember doing a show on the wards at the St Mary's and there was a fella, a big handsome fella, used to go to the market tab and I, it was one of me, Murphy used to call him me drinking cronies and he was emaciated like a concentration camp victim. And I says, anything you want? So I sat in the bed and he said, I'd kill for a fag. So I lit a ciggy, smoked it and passed it to him. And he took a few drags and he said, oh, he was coughing his gut up. He said, I can't finish that, you finish it. And I remember them all, there was a doctor and nurses, Anadrella stood there and they all went, because <gasps> I sucked the fag off him and smoked it. So, and I, if I knew even then, it, you weren't going to get it off a cigarette or a toilet seat or any of this bollocks. But were you not, but I mean, what was going through your head when you saw the horrors of what it did to people? You must have been frightened of that happening to well, you. Well, I was. You know, we were all sitting on a time bomb. You know, and every day, the dressing room and the box hall became like the confessional because somebody would come in to me and say, can I have a word with you? Because they found it easier 
to talk to a stranger. Because uh, yeah. I asked people, I said, well, why would you tell me? I never told you, I told Lily. But that must have been... I mean, I know that you obviously weren't it going through the horrors of it yourself, but it must have been hard for you in terms of a burden on your Well, shoulders. I was lucky because I'd been... Don't forget, I'd worked in social services for years, so I was sort of well used to trauma and things like that. I was no sort of wallflower who had not seen... I mean, don't, you're looking at somebody who has found a decomposed baby in a smackhead's cot, yeah. you know, and stuff like that. An old woman burned to death because she had a stroke and fell over the gas stove. So how did seeing Ed's... Patients on a oh, ward compared to that. Especially that... close friends because... And you, they had what was called the look. That, yeah. That's how it was termed then, in the eyes, big eyes, and the teeth started to get bigger. And you'd say, you know, you'd know. And the, and the bravery of, of these men, where they'd um, try and make light of it. Oh, I'm fine, you know. And then they'd crack a little bit and have a word with you, you know, and say, well, I'm not too good. And then a week later, they'd be in hospital. A week later, they'd be dead. It was that quick in the early days. Screenwriter Russell T. Davis made his name in the late 90s with the groundbreaking Channel 4 series Queer as Folk. This was one of the first television programmes to be funny, bold and frank about the reality of life as a gay man in the UK. Since then, he's written countless gay characters into programmes like Bob and Rose and Cucumber. But when we met at his home in Manchester, he told me he thought TV still had a long way to go to accurately reflect gay men. We fall slightly into the trap. I get said this. It's like, why do you still bother doing gay dramas? It's like, uh, of of thinking that we're everywhere. We are not. There's still, we're we're sitting on a load of 2,000 years of literature in which we don't exist. But um, isn't it interesting that there's still, you know, you look at all these soaps, there's still relatively few dramas in which gays are... I mean, there was London Spy last year in terms of gays being central characters. There's a few coming up this year for the 50th anniversary, but gays are for life, not just for anniversaries. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's true. You can troll through vast hours of television and and it's the back catalogue that worries me. It's it's like those those thousand film... And movies are worse than anyone. Movies are the worst. It's like television is way ahead of movies and you can sit through the 5,000 movies on Sky Movies and not find a gay character. Where in the Marvel Universe, please, is there going to be someone gay at any point? Oh, I know, tell it's me like, about and, 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 Deadpool and, doesn't cut it. It's no, not it's quite, it's not gay. And, you know, and thank you, Pixar. I adore Pixar films, but we did not need that Ken in Toy Story 3 being so camp and so glittery and so unnecessary. You don't need that. It's cheeky. Yeah, you yeah, can yeah. do better than that. All the gay men working on those films, come on, do a better job. So there's... There's, you know, we're sitting on the works of Dickens and Shakespeare. You can look at Shakespeare and say Oberon and Puck were gay. No, they were not, actually. You're putting a modern reading onto it. These things are devoid of gayness. Our vast back culture of, of, of literature, which is a wonderful thing to have in a society, is, is devoid of us. We don't exist. Our men and our women are not in there. From Russell T. Davis, we went to comedian Stephen K. Amos. As a black gay man, Stephen grew up with two attributes that marked him out as different. One of them he couldn't hide, but it wasn't until 2006 that he shared his sexuality with the world in a show called All of Me. But despite feeling comfortable enough to come out on stage, it was a different story when it came to his family. So tell us your story. What was it like when you came out to your mum and dad? Well, do you know what? I've got to be honest, I didn't have one of those moments. I never did. Uh, the only people I sort of sat down and went, ba-da, are my brothers and sisters. So who told your mum and dad, or did you never tell them? I, I don't think... But you know what? I, I, a part of me 
You're smiling now. I think, I think you... Have you no, ever... you know, no I'm, I'm, I'm smiling because I'm assuming that, bearing in mind they know me and they've, they've seen me with two people for a long time, <laughs> i.e. relationships, um, and my mum once said to me, um, you know what, whoever you love is up to you. I'm, I, just, I just never felt the need to go and sit them down and go, by the way... This is that. This is... See, I think that's fascinating because you're such an amazing role model. You do all these shows about being gay, but you still can't say to your mum and dad the words, I am gay. Yes, I'll give you that. So that does mean that there still is a lot of shit around you. Uh, but, and you, know, you are conditioned uh, by some of the stuff you grew up with. Uh, but you know what? I, I don't, there's, it's very rare that I say to anybody, by the way, I'm gay. You know, I just that just doesn't come out of my mouth, really. Why oh, not? Well, I, I, I say it all the time. Well, of course, <laughs> you can't hide it, can you, lamb? Um, I don't, I don't, yes, maybe for many, many years, I couldn't say it. I couldn't articulate those words because, you know, it did, you know, people of my generation anyway, there was a level of shame, a, le a level of um, inferiority complex, uh, non-acceptance, you were an outsider. So maybe it was easier just to blend into the background. So have you taken, so you mentioned these two previous boyfriends, have you taken either of them home to see your mum and dad? Absolutely. But this, how did this... you introduce them? <laughs> that's a good, that's a good, let's just, one of them uh, is still my very, very good friend till this day. We lived together for seven years. Did you right? use... And my parents used to come to visit me and I'd go and visit them. You know, it was one of those unspoken things. That's so what, did you use yeah. to call, this is my friend, did you that's do That's how it first started, yeah. Oh, no! Yeah. And oh, no, that, that makes me sad that there's still that level of discomfort there with you, that you couldn't say to your mum and dad, this is my boy... What, would you, what do you think they would have said if you said to them, this is my boyfriend, I love Ooh, him? Oh, that's, that's, that's... I have no idea. No, but it fills me with anxiety. That anxiety about publicly saying, I am gay, came up a few times throughout the series. And it's clear that many of our listeners could relate to it. Gordon Love from Scotland got in touch to tell us his story. I was uh, 10 when the law changed in England and Wales, but being in Scotland, the law didn't change until 1980. So I was 23 by then. I'd left university and started my first job. So I grew up in an environment um, when being gay was not discussed. There was no information. I knew no one. And I went to... Uh, I think I was 18 before I met the, my first other gay person. So I was in the closet until 23, thinking, oh, I want to be a teacher, but you can't be gay and be a teacher. You, you'll get sacked, because no employment protection in Scotland at that time was very much still a Presbyterian country. And things like that were not done. If people were out in Scotland before 1980, before the law changed, I mean, they could be... Um, arrested quite easily. I mean, many went to prison. Many lost their jobs. And even even after the laws changed, but employment didn't change. I remember reading about uh, a chap who worked for uh, a youth camp who was sacked as soon as it was discovered that he was gay. And that wasn't uncommon. One of the things that came across in almost all the interviews was no matter what age the person was, when the laws were changed, or even if they were born many years afterwards, every single person had an individual experience. Everyone still has to come out. It's not like uh, um, heterosexual people being expected. You know, boys will meet girls, girls will meet boys. Everyone has an individual concern. Will our families accept us? 
And that came out with everyone from Ian McKellen, Paul O'Grady, right through to the youngest, like Tom Daly. Um, they all had to say, what will happen if we come out? Will our family accept us? Will our friends accept us? Will we still be able to continue our lives as we are? It's a very difficult choice people face, even now, even in much more liberal times here in this country. This next clip is from the erasure singer Andy Bell. And Andy certainly went through his own personal battle in terms of being gay. When we met, he told me how, despite his enormous success as a musician, homophobic bullying and shyness had led him to miss out on some of the things other gay men might take for granted. I kind of feel kind of jealous of George Michael, you know, because I think he's explored every avenue that he wanted to, and I don't think that I have, you know. Oh, really? Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, I, I think a lot to do with my shyness as well. You know, I mean, I've been all around the world and everything, but, uh, you know, even kind of going to bathhouses or whatever, you know, I wouldn't hardly do anything because I just felt like... Uh, I think especially as, as, as we became more and more famous as well, you know, I remember one time being in Amsterdam and, um, and this guy was, like, um, doing a blowjob on me. And then he goes, oh, you really look like that guy from Eurasia. And I thought, oh, this is it now. You know, <laughs> I, I'm not going to... Yeah, but no. to be honest, I think um, when you put it all out there anyway, yeah. in your public persona, um, would it have been a big story that you got a blowjob from a guy in Amsterdam? Well, when... probably not, no. I mean, you know, it, it was... Uh, that was the thing, it was kind of like... I think it's because I can't let go. So, so when you say you're jealous of George Michael for doing everything, yeah. you mean everything sexually? You mean you're yes. quite vanilla and you're quite inhibited sexually? Um, I wouldn't say I was inhibited, but uh, let's say... I mean, I've been to a few of those kind of, like, S&M-type, you know, um, parties and things, but I'd never surrendered myself to the full goings-on in whatever's happening in there. Yeah, but you're saying that as if it's a bad thing. If it's not part yeah. of who you are... Right, I mean, yeah. if people like doing that, that's great. Yeah, but if yeah, you, yeah. I think it's something worse than forcing yourself to do it because you feel you should. Right. And, um, you know, you don't feel good about yourself yeah. afterwards if that's the case. Right. I mean, I've no, I, I haven't thought about it that much, but, you know, maybe I just felt I wasn't complete, like a complete gay person, I don't know. Well, I don't there's, know. there's still plenty of time, darling. No, no, I'm married now, so... We've come as far as our June episode, which saw Julian Clary talking camp, comedy and living through the AIDS crisis. If you're of a certain age, you might remember him making a particularly lewd joke about the politician Norman Lamont on primetime TV back in 1993. I asked him about the impact that joke had on him at the time and how it affected his career. It wasn't a very pleasant experience, you know, that sort of feeling that um, I'd caused all this outrage. But at the same time, I, I really hadn't caused... You know, it was a sort of a whipped-up storm about nothing. I think there were 12 complaints to London Weekend Television. I, know. I don't think the nation was... Outraged. Well, no, it was just, it was just something that... Um, but that sort of feeling of infamy and all that, that the next day, I did feel like I was in trouble, yes. 
If you put it in the context of my life at the time, it wasn't that important. There were other things going on. And I was, I think I was on a lot of Valium at the time, things that lower your, um, your defences in that any, any sort of sense of what would be an appropriate thing to say was not there on that evening at the Comedy Awards. So I was in a bit of a state, but it wasn't because of that backlash. You know, it was other things... I mean, I, I, it's, very, it's a very neat thing to say, looking back, oh, yes, well, you see, and I do say this sometimes just to get the subject out of the way, that um, I needed some space in my life to deal with bereavement and stuff. Therefore, I said this in order to clear my diary and then I could go away and recover. I don't really think that's um, what it was like at the time. But if you look back now, you're this national treasure, Strictly Come Dancing, Celebrity Big Brother, you know, best-selling novels, all that. Do you ever, do you ever think, um, God, when I was at my lowest ebb, I had no idea that I would suddenly be celebrated widely by the public? I didn't think I'd be able to string out a career this long, no. I didn't think, um, you know, it was very, it's a very deliberately lightweight act and the, everything I do is a sort of variation on that. So um, to find that I've never had to do a day's work <laughs> is, um, is a surprise. Julian Clary there, wrapping up part one of our special New Year Greatest Hits episode of Attitude Heroes. In just a moment, we'll hear some of the best bits from Lord Michael Cashman, Mark Gatiss, Gareth Thomas, Mark Armand, Gok Wan, and our most recent guests, Tom Daly and Dustin Lance Black. But first, a quick quiz for you. Which one of those guests says that, with his teeth, getting a blowjob from him is like getting a blowjob from a cheese grater? Stay tuned. Welcome back to part two of our special Greatest Hits episode of Attitude Heroes, bringing you all the best bits from 12 months' worth of interviews. Thanks again if you contacted us to tell us your favourite moments. We'll be hearing more of those soon. Attitude Heroes is sponsored by the Great Britain Campaign, which welcomes the world to visit, do business, invest and study in the UK. You can check out their website at great.gov.uk. And our co-sponsors are Jaguar. If you'd like more information on their products, then you can visit the website jaguar.co.uk or look out for them in the latest issue of Attitude magazine. In July, I sat down with Michael Cashman, once known best as Colin from EastEnders and now a Labour peer, known officially as Baron Cashman of Limehouse. Michael has been one of the UK's most active and effective advocates for equality for gay men, and along with Ian McKellen, was one of the founders of the charity Stonewall. When we met, he told me about the power politicians have to make life different, better for gay men. We made amazing progress in this country from 97 onwards. That was the first start of equal legisl legislation coming in, 1998. Oh, I know, right? I remember it, yeah, yeah. And 
1967, when the partial decriminalisation, and then 1991, when John Major ended the bar on uh, homosexuals being prevented from serving in the Foreign Office and the diplomatic service. Nothing, certainly nothing in law. It happened because we got organised in this country, we won the arguments with politicians, we started to challenge the arguments against with the media, and then politicians in government had the courage to take action in advance of public opinion. Time and time again in this series, our guests told us how they came out, both to society at large and to their friends and family. It's fair to say that some found it easier than others. The Doctor Who and Sherlock writer and actor Mark Gatiss had some help from his mother. But that was only half the story. You know, I sort of dreaded it, like everyone does. You forget uh, that dread, don't oh, you? When you get yeah, older, yeah. I was thinking about it the other day, that dread that was there on your shoulders But there just so never long. seems to be a moment, does it? That's yeah. what I remember. And then, and of course, you read about other people's experiences and you think, what's going to happen? And then what happened was, um, I was I was at visiting home. I was about 20, I think, and um, my mum one night just asked me. She literally said... You have a lot of friends who are girls, but they never seem to be your girlfriends. Beat. <laughs> are you not interested in girls? And I went, no. And that was it. And it, that evening was like, it was such a relief. Um, I, what I particularly remember, yeah, I, um, Star Trek was on. Uh, the Next Generation. This is suddenly becoming a very Mark Gertie story. Uh, no, but it was, uh, I'm not a fan of The Next Generation. Oh. But, but it was on. And, uh, and the, what's his name? Will Wheaton, Wesley Crusher. Uh, and we, so we had this sort of conversation. It was just really easy. And then she sort of, my mum made the tea and she said, he's a good looking lad, isn't he? And I went, yes. Full uh, credit to your mum. It mom. was just marvellous. But... The caveat was, you see, then I said, well, I'd better tell Dad. And she went, no, it'll kill him. <laughs> <laughs> so rather against my better judgment, we didn't tell him. And then I went back to wherever I was living, uh, Leeds, or oh, I can't remember. And um, I was on the phone to her about a week later and she said, uh, oh, your Uncle Jack came. We had snow. Uh, I told you, Dad. Uh, and she just dropped it in like that. I went, oh. So she told my dad and then told my sister and my brother. And, and I kind of felt... I was very relieved. It's like, oh, I didn't actually have to do it. It was fine. It was taken care of. But did part of you wish you had well, had to do it? Well, what happened was I realised about six months later that basically I had to do it again because it... Wasn't being discussed. No, it had been... It had, been, it had happened and then, it, then the box had been securely closed. So I sort of had to do it again. But had you had time to come round to it? Back, yeah, yeah. To and actually, you know, and it was it was great. My, um, uh, They were great. <laughs> and And... You know, it's it's funny how it sort of it does sort of sometimes creep in. You know, I was on the phone to my dad the other day telling him about the monologues, and he said to me, "When I was home a, a couple of months ago, we went out for, for tea, and uh, he suddenly said something like, um, some of his friends have once said, how, you know, how can you how can you stand it?'" And he said, "Well, he's my son. What do you think I'm going to do? Chuck him out?" And it, it really took me by surprise. He'd never talked like that, and and I don't know when those conversations date from, whether they were from many years ago or whether they still occur, I don't know. But, you know, being on the cover of the Radio Times and, and it says Mark Gates talks about being gay and I, I, I don't know how he feels about, you know, 
telling his friends that I'm on the cover of Radio Times. Being a prominent gay man working in the arts, whether that's in TV, comedy, music or theatre, is one thing, but being an out and proud gay sportsman is still very rare. A brilliant exception to this is Welsh rugby legend Gareth Thomas. Gareth suppressed his sexuality for more than 20 years before finally announcing that he was gay in 2009. He was a very funny interviewee, not least when he recalled his first gay encounter, when he was still very much in the closet. So the first man that I kind of was intimate with was um, actually when I was a postman. It was the most fucking awkward time ever. Oh my God, this is like someone out of a porn film. You were oh, a postman. And yeah, you... I, 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 so I was a postman. So I was, I was de- delivering letters and then there was this guy who came out because I'd posted like his uh, letter through the door and it hadn't kind of gone through the door correct. So I thought he was going to come out and say so you didn't put it all the way through. Like You sent him very yeah. carry on now. I swear, but <laughs> so he came out and I'm standing there and there was this... Like, I was kind of like, oh, fucking hell, what's going on here? And was, was he fit? So you're talking about being desperate, but was he actually fit? Um, put it this way now, I wouldn't touch him with a shitty <laughs> stick if I really seen him now, but, but like, that's how desperate I was. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he invited me in and we kind of had this, um, like, it was, it was the most awkward sex ever. It's like, I, but how did... Right, so just a minute. So right. how old were you at the time? 17, just going on 18. So so how does he just... How do you go about inviting a 17-year-old right. postman in for sex when there's nobody anywhere in the surroundings who's gay and nobody knows yeah. what gay means? Yeah, well, so I, I hadn't posted the letter and so he came out and then he said, oh, would you like a cup of tea? Because it was like a freezing cold, ridiculously early morning. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. And... Did you I spot it, something in his eye? Did you? I, I genuinely, genuinely have no fucking idea what it was. Like, I genuinely don't know what. May, maybe there's people listening to this will be like, well, I was your gaydar, but whatever it is, I don't know. But there was this, there wasn't an attraction. There definitely wasn't an attraction, but there was this feeling that, holy shit, something might happen here. Um, so we went in. Um, you must have been terrified. Well, I thought he was going to give me a cup of tea and like a plastic cup and I'll take it away. But he gave me like a <laughs> cup of tea and a mug and I'm like, oh, fuck. Right, I can't just take your mug. So I, um, so I, so I sat down. He sat next to me, and it was like this weird thing. Of, you know, I suppose even now, if you do it, like when you go for a date, and like, like you, somebody's knee touches your knee, and you think, oh, that electricity. Yeah. In that. Well, I wouldn't say it was fucking electricity. I was like, right, okay, what's happening now? And then I pulled my knee away, and then he pull put his knee closer. I was like, oh fuck, all right, okay. Um, and then we just started. I ended up having like the most awkward. Um, random, like, I don't even know if you can, it, was, it wasn't sex, like, it wasn't sex. Blowjobs and yeah, words. Yeah, yeah, kind of. well, it, was, it wasn't even that, because, like, <laughs> like, with my teeth, it's like, I'm the blowjob of a fucking cheese grater. It's kind of like, <laughs> <laughs> and I just didn't, didn't know what the fuck with a blow, like, what do I do? Like, I literally never... Well, in those days, we didn't have any internet. I don't know if I knew what a blowjob well, was. Well, I generally, like, I, I, I can honestly remember, and this was kind of <laughs> after it, was I remember honestly for a while I was like with a blowjob do I blow yeah no or no. do I suck I don't know like why would you call it a blowjob if you suck <laughs> like I didn't I don't know and I can imagine like a fucking down and blowing it's like it's always like what the fuck are you doing so you didn't give him a blowjob so I didn't give him a blowjob because I didn't know what it was it was more of like this mutual wanky thing but then after that because it, it, it like from now then though it was it got quite horrible because I remember going home and obviously nobody knew what I'd done. And it was, it was literally like, 
I literally felt like the most dirtiest person alive because all of a sudden I'd had all these, like I'd had all these feelings for such a long, but I'd never acted on it. So it was, it was suppressed, but it was okay because it was just in my head. But all of a sudden now it became a reality and and it was fucking really scary because it was like, I don't know, opening Pandora's box. You're just kind of like, fuck, what have I done? Throughout the 12 episodes, our guests have expressed pretty much the full range of emotions about their lives as gay men. From pride to shame, joy to despair, rejection to acceptance. When I met the singer Mark Ormond in October, he spoke freely about the sense of anger that's been with him since he was young. I've always been a bit angry. I think I was very angry. I don't know. I think my, my main anger came from my father. I think it all stemmed from him because my, my father was a, an alcoholic bully. He was an alcoholic, a quite violent person. He, he marched into school one day. This is when I was at, in Leeds, when I must have been about 14, 13 or 14. And he knew I liked art, and he had an art teacher called Miss Green, who was, she had all kind of afro-y hair, and she was all kind of wearing well, kind of crochets and things. <laughs> like an art teacher and round glasses. And he, he marched in to see her one day, demanded to see her. My father says, I demand to know if my son is a homosexual. <gasps> and everything, drunk. And I was called into the head's office and said, you know your father's been here causing trouble and wanting to know if you're homosexual. Are you? <gasps> And I said, well, this was flabbergasted, you know. I said, of course not, you know, so, so, you know everything. And you do, you? that's 13, what made me actually tell I'm at 13, yeah. So my anger, I think, comes from something that stems with from home life more than school life. But also, I, I think you're bound to be scarred by the times. You, you know, even though I can be put on my roasting sweaters and said, yeah, I did have some good times at school. But it was an underlying fear, I think, with all of it. All the time. Well, that your dad could. Well, well, they, well, not my dad, but the thing is that you, you, you knew that you weren't right, like everybody else. You felt they weren't right. You were like uh, an outsider. Of everybody. You didn't. You weren't clicking into everybody else. And you always felt. I remember. I remember when I kind of, I, I ran away from school. I was at school. And I was at, the games teacher was trying to force me to go in goals or something awful like that. I'm ridiculous. And then I so I, I ran away from school. And they chased after me. The the, the games t- they came looking. I was hidden in some woods nearby. And they came finding me. And they just bullied me and pushed me around so much. The sort of games teachers. And that was the only really kind of bullying I experienced at school was was from the PE teachers and games teachers because I wouldn't play games yeah, as good as the other boys. Interesting. Not from you, the boys, but from the teachers. I suppose it's a different thing if you feel despised by your peer group. That can be a really damaging thing. Whereas if you're yeah. you feel rejected by adults, you can just rebel against the adults. Yeah, which is kind of a normal thing for a teenager, isn't it? It's also that thing as well. You, you know, I mean, I, I'm saying that you know that though I, I did have some good times going and gravitated. If anyone ever ask you, are you gay? To no. You, you've never, you've never, so you've, you've never said, so, I've, got, I've got a girlfriend, you know, and, and so, 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 and so, it was, so all this messing about you do with other boys was just messing about. It was they felt they didn't want to be called queer or whatever. You didn't want to be called queer. It was just kind of, it's just things that happened. You know, you, you'd go on, you'd, 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 be, you'd be on cross country with another boy and you'd be running and, you'd, you'd, and everything and you'd stop off and something and then something would happen. And they kind of, whether it was kind of gravity because they knew I'd, I'd be re- reciprocant in something, something like that, but they were never called gay or never called, you never referred to them as being a gay thing or, 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 or a... Or, or a you know, because you, 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 if anyone else found out, you'd be a queer. 
The shame and pain that can come with being labelled gay, whether that was through simple insults or subtler words that enforce unwelcome stereotypes, came up a number of times. Our guests revealed how they did or didn't like terms such as queer or puff and reminded us how easy it is to diminish or emasculate someone with just a few short words. When I spoke to Gok Wan, he complained about the blatant discrimination he's faced, both as a gay man and as an Asian man. There is real racism within the gay community, yeah. without question. There absolutely is. And, you know, I've, I've spoken very openly about this before. The amount of times that I've heard um, people turn around and say, I'm not really into Asians. You know, people have said that to me, and I'm an Asian gay man, and I obviously take complete offence to that. And I know we all have types and preferences and stuff, but you can never turn around and say, well, I'm just not into any of those. I just I find it so really... Weird, it? I find it really weird. But there is, there is a tendency also to believe that, you know, years ago when the Long Yang Club was in, in London, the, you know, a gay Asian kind of themed night, and it was, um, you know, the entire space was hypercamp, and energetic and loud and flamboyant because it kind of suited that. It didn't feel like XXL or a leather bar or any of those kind of things. It wasn't designed around that. But because we naturally, well, I suppose people thought that if you go down there, there's going to be a lot of gay Asians. It's all going to be very feminine and, and, and you know, But where like does that assume, come from, that association between femininity and gay Asians? I, I do literally you know what? don't get it. I've met as many masked ones as I have yeah. feminine ones. Uh, do you know what? I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it could be down... I'm, I'm asking these questions now. I don't have the answers to this. Oh, finally, it... you've got, I've got you on something <laughs> that you don't have the answer to. I'm really happy. <laughs> I know everything, man. I'm joking. Um, <laughs> is it to do with the fact that when we think about gay Asia, we think Bangkok ladyboy? So instantly, what the first visual that we see is a very feminine visual. Is it something to do with how Asian bodies are constructed, where they predominantly were all hairless? or a lot of us are completely hairless, so naturally that feels more feminine. Is it to do with the petite size of the average Asian? So is it something to do with that? I don't know. These are just questions. And so it could have all of these things, I'm sure, have a influence in that. Um, but I'd just like to point out right now that absolutely not all Asians are bottoms. I know they're not done. Myself included. <laughs> so there we go. We've nearly reached the end of our trawl through the best bits of 12 months' worth of Attitude Heroes. But we're ending with a clip from one of the most popular episodes of all. Just last month, I sat down with one of the world's true gay power couples, Olympic diver Tom Daly and his husband, Oscar-winning screenwriter Dustin Lance Black. This interview inspired Matt Webdale to get in touch to say Tom Daly and Dustin Lance Black are a true inspiration to gay men around the world. Listening to this actually makes me proud to be gay and proud to have a boyfriend. We need more people like these two. Thank you so much for all the inspiration. Matt, thank you. And thank you to everyone who's been in touch, reviewed us, rated us, sent in feedback, subscribed, or even just listened. I'll leave you with this clip of Tom and Lance talking about what the next few years hold for gay men and for other communities that face discrimination during the presidency of Donald Trump. Do you think this is, you know, you've been active in this field for a long time. Do you think it's a temporary blip on the road forward? Or do you think there is a serious danger that progress will be rolled back permanently? Uh, it's up to us. That is such a good question. I, I love that question because that question, it's, it's not something that you can sit back on your tail and tweet about. It's not, that's not activism, guys. 
Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's not activism. You got to get up off your butt. You got to help literally physically get out there and march, not just for us, but for other groups. Create those coalitions that will make us strong enough in numbers and in a volume of our voices that we can win at the at the ballot box and get rid of guys like Trump. And then make it a blip. It can only be a blip if we make it a blip. It'll only be a blip if we make it a blip. This isn't the first time in history we've seen a backlash, and we've seen some backlashes last generations and generations, some that we're never, we're still not healed from. And we want to make sure this is a blip. But if we're going to do that, we got to be stronger together. Celebrate your your difference. I would hate to lose the beautiful variety of being LGBTQIA, but I also think these divisions, like you said, we're creating amongst ourselves, whether that is good gay or bad gay, uh, whether that is I'm different in this way, LGBT, uh, I, I think that's making us weaker politically and it's making all of us less safe. The solution to these civil rights problems is being very loud and shining a very bright light so that the world can see where this sort of discrimination is happening. If we all see it, we recognize the evil in it, and we will start doing what we need to do to stop it. Uh, but our, what, what we have the power to do in places like the UK and those of us uh, in the US who are still resisting is to shine that very bright light. You have that power at Attitude. You have that power at this magazine. We're using it. We're doing our bit. We're I'm, doing everything we can. I'm, I'm glad you are. Thing, that if you're an eight-year-old, even if you've just got four years of Trump, if you're eight years old and you have the between the ages of eight and twelve, you're hearing someone that is homophobic, someone that is, you know, uh, the, against every kind of, you know, diversity that, and not for, for equality at all. If you're hearing that for four years. They're going to grow up being racist, homophobic, and have those same values. And then that's going to be passed down to the people that are two years younger, two years older. And then that creates a, another generation, a yeah. six-year generation, that has heard that and are going to continue to pass that down. So we need a block of time where people are more accepting and open, because if you don't have that, then, you know, it's going to keep happening. We've got more people trying to fight against the LGBTQIA family so having fights amongst ourselves or not having agreements and not having the coalition, not being, you know, feeling like we are one big family makes us weaker. Tom Daly and Dustin Lance Black wrapping up our greatest hits episode of Attitude Heroes. Attitude Heroes is sponsored by the Great Britain Campaign, which welcomes the world to visit, do business, invest and study in the UK. Check out their website at great.gov.uk. And our co-sponsors are Jaguar. If you'd like more information on their products, then you can visit the website jaguar.co.uk or look out for them in the latest issue of Attitude magazine. Until next time, thanks for listening and Happy New Year. your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.